Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Connor Fraser. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Ontario's provincial election is fast approaching. And to that end, this episode of Beyond the Headlines is dedicated to understanding some of the critical issues facing the province. We are grateful to be joined by the authors of two transition briefings from the Ontario 360 Initiative within the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Ontario 360 is a purpose-built initiative to scan Ontario's economic challenges and opportunities and develop evidence-based public policy ideas to inform and shape the Ontario government's policy planning and priorities. In conjunction with leading policy thinkers from across the province, Ontario 360 has commissioned a series of bi-weekly policy briefings in advance of the provincial election. These are short, digestible, non-partisan and fact-based pieces designed to appeal to policy leaders in addition to a broader audience. The briefings cover a wide range of policy issues from physical policy to homelessness, from innovation policy to urban indigenous concerns, from tax policy to the future of work, and many more. You can follow Ontario 360's work on Twitter, at Ontario 360, or by visiting their website, www.om360.ca. For today's discussion, we first sit down with Thomas Hatchard, from the Institute on Municipal Finance and Governance. Thomas co-authored the briefing entitled, Meeting in the Middle, How to Get Provincial Municipal Cooperation Right. After a short break, we are joined by David McGowan of the Canadian Business Coalition for Climate Policy. David authored the two-part briefing entitled, The Politics of Emissions Reduction in Ontario. We're so glad you tuned in for our show and hope you enjoy the discussion. We are joined today with Mr. Thomas Hatchard, who is Manager of Programs and Research at the Institute on Municipal Finance and Governance. Recently, Thomas co-authored, alongside Dr. Edith Slack, the Ontario 360 Transition Briefing, Meeting in the Middle, How to Get Provincial Municipal Cooperation Right, which forms the basis of our discussion today. This is the issue. Municipal governance has been a source of long-standing debate in Ontario. Discussions have generally focused on a set of familiar questions. How should responsibilities be divided between the province and municipalities? How much autonomy should municipalities have in delivering on their responsibilities? Do municipalities have sufficient revenue sources? And are municipalities structured to plan and deliver public services most effectively? Past attempts at addressing these questions have focused in part on limiting shared responsibilities between the province and municipalities. Such an approach, however, is neither feasible nor advisable today. The major policy challenges facing Ontario do not require a watertight division of responsibilities. They require intergovernmental cooperation. 
An incoming provincial government should focus on how to tailor municipal governance and provincial-municipal relations for that reality. Quite uh, a strong issue statement there. And with that, um, I'm joined by Thomas Hatchard. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Beyond the Headlines. Thank you, Connor. It's, it's great to be here. So to get, to get the ball rolling, to kick things off, might I just ask you, what is the Institute on Municipal Finance and Governance and what research do you engage in at the University of Toronto? Yes, no, I'm happy, happy to tell you a bit about uh, the Institute, uh, which we, we like to call IMFG in sh for short. Uh, we're an institute uh, based at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Uh, it was founded in 2004 by uh, Enid Slack, my co-author on, on this paper, and, and Alan Broadbent. And our mandate is really to try to focus on the, the, the name of our institute says it all, focus on issues around municipal finance and governance, um, and to try to elevate the debate on questions around how can municipalities fund the responsibilities that they have, what powers do municipalities have, what powers should municipalities have, and all of this in the context of you know, the great plans and ideas that emerge from you know, other think tanks and government around what municipalities should be doing. But, but really we wanna look at that, those questions afterwards is how will municipalities pay for these things and do they have the powers to really uh, enact the change that are, is being demanded of them? And so we do that by publishing research uh, papers. Uh, we also host events and, and we have fellowships. We, we have two, a postdoctoral fellow and two graduate fellows. And, and through these three streams of, of work, uh, we, we, we really like to investigate sort of uh, big municipal policy issues and, and uh, from a finance and governance lens. Uh, I think uh, an interesting high level question first would just be, can you give us an overview of the purpose of municipalities? What value does this layer of government add to everyday life for Ontarians? Yeah, and I think that's a great question to start with. I think sometimes we uh, we don't we we forget about municipalities sometimes or about local governments and, and all the things they do, um, and really they're extremely present in our lives. Um, one committee from the '60s uh, actually at that time said that the function of municipalities and local governments was really twofold. It's about services. And it's about access. And my co-author in this report, Enid Slack, really likes to point out that from the moment that people wake up to the moment, uh, uh, from the moment that people wake up to the moment that they go to sleep, people are interacting with their municipal government. So if you wake up and you brush your teeth, you're using municipal water, you take municipal transit to work, or you might drive on a municipal road, you might go for lunch and you eat it in a park that's municipally owned. And then that night you take out the garbage and that's picked up by a municipal government. Uh, in some cases, electricity is delivered locally. So you turn on your lights and, and you're using municipal service there. So traditionally, municipalities really are there to deliver these local services that are essential to our, our lives. Um, it, I haven't even mentioned you know, sewers and, and, and wastewater and, and that kind of stuff as well. Part of the paper, you know, the objective of the paper that that Ina and I have written is about you know, looking at how the definition of local services has changed over time um, and what that, the challenges that that poses. But you know, at a basic level, that's sort of what local governments do. And the other piece of it, you know, services is one piece, access is another important piece, right? Because local governments are meant to be small enough um, to be able to operate close enough to residents in order to better respond to their needs. They don't, they don't feel as distant as provincial or federal governments, and that's sort of by design, um, and, and therefore they're more accessible to the public. And you can see that even just on how they function. You know, in Toronto City Council, to give an example, is a very open space. People can, can go to council meetings, to committee meetings. It's, it's more open than their uh, provincial and federal government, and that's by design. Um, and that's another value that local government has, another reason for it to exist. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I think just to paraphrase what what you said there, that where the, the role of municipalities comes in is where there is something that needs to be delivered at the local level uh, that is sort of uh, fine-tuned to the needs of people in a certain area that mm -hmm. can't be delivered by an entity uh, looking looking at things from a much larger perspective over a region like a province, for example. So there is a, there is a need to have these services delivered locally, and that's where municipalities come in, sort of the day-to-day nitty-gritty of our lives. That's right, yeah. And I think a theme from, from the issue statement that I read earlier was moving towards greater cooperation and away from provincial municipal division of responsibilities. Uh, first of all, why, why have we gotten to this point where uh, municipal and provincial responsibilities are so divided? And uh, what are examples of some activities that might benefit from, from greater cooperation? You know, what we were trying to point out in the paper is that in the, in the 90s in particular, when there was a look at uh, the question of who does what and, and how to divide responsibilities between the province and municipalities and, and thinking through, as you say, you know, what, you know, what policy areas, what services need to be, you know, fine-tuned at the local level, which ones, you know, can be delivered provincially and, and really trying to split it up. The, the rationale there, the, the policy thinking was, um, to try as much as possible to not have overlap, to have you know, watertight compartments really between the two uh, orders of government. And what we were trying to point out in the paper is I think what has been proven the case over the last several decades is that there are some areas where that is feasible and where, where that's advisable uh, to, to divide things that cleanly. But there's many policy areas where you're not going to be able to have one order of government handle it all and, and moving towards cooperation and seeing that as a valuable thing to move towards. That's not something that is um, that we should try to avoid is important. So two areas, just to give examples, you know, climate change is certainly one of them. You know, if we think about climate change, it is certainly a national, if not a global challenge. And we really need the provincial and uh, federal governments to be putting in regulations and incentives things like carbon price, carbon pricing, like we're seeing, you know, green energy investments, green tech investments, these all are all things that the provinces and federal government are really uh, well suited to deliver. But municipalities are also involved, you know, land use planning has a climate component, waste management has a climate component, transit planning is part of climate change action. And you're going to need to coordinate these approaches if we're really going to tackle a challenge as big as climate change. The other example I'd point towards is uh, something like mental health and addictions and, and the crises we're facing there, including the opioid crises in, in many cities. This touches on healthcare, it touches on policing, it touches on public health, it touches on housing. And all these things, you know, they, they vary in terms of which order of government is involved and, and certainly municipalities are involved in all of them. And we're not going to get, you know, the best action we can on those by saying only one order of government is responsible. What we really need is cooperation on, on that challenge as well. So that's, that's why we wrote this paper to sort of uh, try to argue that we should be moving towards that more cooperative stance. You think historically that the aversion to cooperation just comes from sort of a, a mental model that it, it's going to involve a lot of work, that it's going to be painful. Why did people get into this mode of thinking 20 years ago or 30 years ago when the current way of doing things was set up that it's just better to everyone stays in their lane, we don't really talk to one another 
Oh, I, you know, I, I think there's many reasons. And, and I should say, you know, I use the example of the 90s as, as where this was this was the case, but it, it was it, it was it was the case before that as well. I mean, I think there's a couple of, of reasons. One is certainly there's there is a worry that uh, intergovernmental cooperation is is very complex and it can slow things down. It can mire things in bureaucracy. Um, and and I think if you know there's certainly an argument that people make that if you just have one order of government responsible for it, you'll you'll get more faster action and, and more efficient action. Um, the other side of things is you know in Canada our federal structure you know, historically has been based on not having too much uh, overlap between orders of government. Our constitution really says, you know, here's what the federal government's responsible for, here's what the provinces are responsible for. So that is something that's in our history. Now, even from a federal provincial perspective, that over time has changed and you've seen a lot more overlap between the orders of government over time. Um, but there is a historical foundation for, for thinking of things in these kind of uh, watertight compartments. Interesting. I didn't know that that was so uh, tightly connected to our constitution. Moving on to the next topic, which is housing affordability, which features in your article, something that everyone cares about these days, but no one seems to really want to do anything about, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> so your article mentions how the housing affordability task force in Ontario recommends that the province allow buildings of up to four stories high on residential land. And consequently, these changes would represent a significant shift in responsibility for land use planning in the province. Uh, so can you take us through this recommendation from the Housing Affordability Task Force and what its implications are for municipalities? We highlighted that recommendation as, as an example of in this task force, it's, it's not all, not every piece of the, uh, the report from the task force is like this, but there are certain many recommendations in there that are rec recommending cent a centralization of the planning process insofar as it would be the province that dictates uh, sort of how high buildings can be in, in parts of, of cities and um, and what, and, and more importantly, whether municipalities are able to adjust those rules themselves or whether they have to follow the, the provincial guidelines. Um, and, you know, I'm not really here as a housing expert to say whether that recommendation by the task force is, is correct or not in terms of whether it will uh, help uh, solve our affordability issues. What's interesting to us from the perspective of provincial municipal relations is the question of whether this tension that has existed over the last four years between a sort of unilateral provincial approach and what is we move a move to what we call a provincially led cooperative approach. So this the task force and the report is in many cases more representative of the unilateral approach and a, and a push for the province to take action because either municipalities don't want to or, or have, have chosen not to for whatever reason. And, and it says, you know, the province really needs to step in and, and do it for them. Uh, we've seen that as well. There has been municipal uh, uh, ministerial zoning orders. I apologize that uh, that the province has been making a, a lot more use of them than previous governments, and that's a case where developments can be fast tracked by the minister of municipal affairs and housing, so that they don't have to go through um, municipal processes, planning processes. So all this, you know, we highlight as an example of what is a sort of a unilateral vision of in terms of looking at housing. But there has also been a more 
cooperative approach taking in other places. There, there's been a, there was a housing summit that the ministry uh, hosted with uh, big city mayors to look at the housing crisis and how to move forward on that. And I think it's been telling that the task force report recommendations came out and the minister and the ministry have said, have moved forward on some of them, but not on the more radical ones. And they have said that no one order of government can do this alone. And I think that's a very telling statement in terms of having potentially seen a move from at the beginning thing, you know, from a unilateral approach at the beginning towards uh, an approach now that sees that both orders of government have to work together on, on this issue. The, the heart of the debate in my, from my perspective is captured by uh, the following excerpt from your article where you write that some might find a top-down approach appealing because they feel that local processes lead to stalled transit plans and limited housing construction. How would you respond to this statement? From my perspective, what's important to look at is not, not the policy outcome one wants to achieve, but also, but, but, you know, structurally, um, what order of government has best sightlines into the, the challenges. So, you know, there's, I have sympathy for wanting the province to step in and tell municipalities that they have to, you know, amend their, their zoning and, and, and do all these things, because perhaps that is the right policy to, to take in order, in order to solve this housing crisis. As I said, I, I can't say either way which, which one, I'm, you know, I'm not a housing expert. Many people have many opinions on that. The question to me is, is it the province that should be doing that? Or should we, we be putting pressure on municipalities to be acting in that space? Because ultimately they are the ones that have best sightlines into at a local neighborhood level, what, you know, what should be happening? How much can the province know about in your neighborhood, what, you know, what should be getting built? You know, that's, that's where we started getting into, you know, the, lead, the need for local action. Now, you know, one of the reasons that perhaps we need to think about a cooperative approach is because maybe there needs to be a balance here where it is that the province is setting, you know, guidelines or setting goals and the municipalities are then working to achieve them knowing the local conditions, right? So there might be a way where that could happen. And the, the other piece of it, and I think we might get to this in, in the interview later, is that there's a regional aspect to this. And I think there can be a challenge when if the city of Toronto and the city of Mississauga and, uh, and other parts of the GTA and GTHA, for instance, if they're not able to cooperate on the housing question, then it can, it can feel challenging to, to, to solve that. And by looking at it from a regional perspective, perhaps there's a way of also getting a balance between the, the local and the provincial. So to, to summarize what you said is that if, if you're the province, you're looking at things from a much higher level you might not see all the fine details that exist at the local level, whereas local governments won't just paint the entire province with one brush. They really understand the needs of each neighborhood. And so maybe there's a case to be made that while the province should set some guidelines at a high level, they should also let municipalities find solutions on their own that are best suited for the, that municipality and that the province um, just doesn't have the resources or the time to to sift through each case. Is that is that that's correct? And, and the only thing I would add, yeah, that's correct. And I would say first that the, in some senses it works that way now. You know, there's a provincial policy statement that guides how uh, uh, planning should be done, um, and certainly the Planning Act is a provincial legislation that guides these things. So. So there's a framework there that exists now, and it doesn't mean we don't have to revisit it or revisit the kind of guidelines that the province is giving. I think there's room for that. And again, in this cooperative approach, 
And the other piece of it is an accountability perspective, which is making sure that it's you know clear for residents who it is that they can hold accountable if they're not getting the results they want. And the more that we you know mix things up and it make it that if municipalities aren't doing the right the thing people want, they just go to the province and say, well, can you force them to? I don't think that's the right accountability we want, right? We want to be able to say, you know, if municipalities aren't doing the right thing. You know, we should vote in new councillors, new mayors, and try to get a new uh, a new approach done. So I think that's also important. Yeah, in our in our city where I'm from, there's this big issue where it seems that the province has stepped in and just approved every sort of development, and it's way outside of the the current zoning, um, what what all the land was zoned for, and it just seems that from the perspective of everyday citizens and in the in the paper that you know what what is our local government even there for and the councillors themselves are sort of sitting and throwing up their hands and going well we have no no power to change anything here it's the province that's telling us what to do so there is that sort of uh, sense that people are skipping in their mind they're making that mental leap from looking at the councillors for accountability to now just thinking that if we have a problem that's you know we should go to the province with our grievances Mm -hmm. And, and perhaps those, yeah, and perhaps those developments should all get built, right? But it would be better if 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 the if it's the municipality that decided that, and if people, if it's the municipality wants that, that it that they've been able to vote in the people who who make that happen. Now, the regional piece is important too because it is important if we have a housing crisis that a municipality sort of says, "I don't want to be part of solving this problem," right? I think that is something that that's where the cooperation needs to be brought in because you don't want one municipality to sort of say, well, we're not going to build anything here. You guys can solve the housing crisis on, on your own. That's not really a way that things will work. So again, it does complicate things to do cooperative. It is more, it, it's not as, it's not as simple a solution, but I think in the long run, it, it will create better outcomes. Yes. I think that's a good way of putting it. Like the, the long run outcome is the goal. And if we just continue business as usual, just sort of patch things up, shove it under the rug, don't address the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. uh, then 10 years from now, we're going to have even bigger problems and not not have the governance structures in place to come out with optimal solutions for what our communities need. That's exactly um, right. And, and on the, the regional issue, this is interesting for me because I've always, we have a regional government uh, in my city, but we also have a municipal government. So I'm sort of like... <laughs> always conflicted about how to un- understand what each does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in your paper, you write that new municipal coalitions and ways of working together could form the foundation for a new era of regionalism. So what, what exactly do you mean by regionalism and why is it something that you advocate for in your paper? Yeah, so it, it is complicated in Ontario because there are regional governments, uh, you know, region of York, region of Halton, um, uh, Peel region. And so when, when we talk about regionalism in, in our paper, uh, it's really trying to think through how can we get the kind of cooperation with the governance structures that allow for policymaker that covers an, an economic region. So the challenge right now is that we have those regional governments and they do great work. And there's a lot to be said for the two-tier model that, that exists where you have your local municipalities and your regional municipalities. But right now we don't have a structure really in place that say covers all of the GTA, which would be Peel, York, 
uh, Toronto or GTHA to include Hamilton um, and Halton and all these these places. So how is it that you know? And 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 really, we're living in a time where the economic region is really what matters to some extent. If we think of what, where people commute from, they're commuting from all parts of this region into Toronto or you know, into other parts of the region. And if you think about the housing crisis again, you know, people are moving further and further out and, and, and we need to be thinking of that from a regional level. So when we say regional, we're sort of thinking of that economic region. Um, I should say also that, you know, I'm talking about the GTHA, there have been studies that sort of look at, you know, how even in Northern Ontario, uh, sort of this kind of regional approach would also help solve some of the challenges up there. So what, what, where this comes from is thinking that there are some policy areas that if it's done independently by municipalities, it can create negative effects. So we were talking about housing, if one municipality decides that, oh, we're not going to build anything that would have a negative effect, um, or they can compete each, uh, against each other for investments that would ultimately benefit the region as a whole. But if you don't have them working together, they're, they're sort of competitors. Uh, if, if transit services aren't coordinated, people might commute from one place to another and, and there, it, it might happen, it might be more challenging than it needs to be. And so what we would like and, and what we're seeing some movement on is trying to think through how this coordination can happen at the economic region. Uh, but Ontario is a bit behind other jurisdictions. In this respect, you know, we're seeing in Edmonton that municipalities in a region have come together to do growth planning and transits together. In New Brunswick, we're seeing more responsibilities given, being given to these kind of bigger regional governments. But in Ontario, what we've seen is that the, the province steps in sometimes as a regional government in the GTHA in particular. Um, and so it does the growth planning for the GTHA. It is in charge of Metrolinx, which is the regional transit agency. And really what we would want is these things to have some municipal involvement. And again, that's where, you know, hopefully we would end up getting some better outcomes through, through a more cooperative approach. And municipalities in the GTHA have been coming together more recently to try to work together on some of these issues. And that's very promising. And I think that bottom-up approach would be, it's going to be very impactful. And hopefully the province can then sort of help support that when, when it's necessary. Uh, so finally, just as we're, we're closing up, uh, in, in your paper, yourself and, and uh, Dr. Slack, present uh, some good recommendations for how to move forward. So I would just ask, what are the most important recommendations you would make to an incoming provincial government about how to approach provincial municipal relations differently? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I look at three things. So the first is to, you know, what we just talked about is to encourage this regionalism. And, and I think what that means is, as these structures of coordination between municipalities uh, become more pronounced and more sophisticated, I think over time what you want, will, will want to see is the province sort of downloading responsibility for some policy areas that are better done at a regional level with municipal involvement. Um, so, you know, transit, economic development, these kind of things to these bodies. Uh, on the transit front, it's more complicated. Metrolinx exists, so maybe if there's a, a way of sort of reforming Metrolinx to get municipalities involved there, there's, there that might be a, 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 a way forward. But, but in general, one of the things we recommend is to really encourage this regionalism and, and empower it as, as it, as it uh, grows. The second piece has to do with uh, fi the finance angle of things. And, you know, we think the province should commit to a comprehensive review of municipal finance. We're seeing that in BC. Um, and we didn't really talk about it that much, but one of the challenges municipalities face is that they, it's, it's a, the constrained finances they have. They rely on the property tax and user fees, which are great for the local, sort of the traditional local responsibilities like roads and sewers and parks, but they're not as good for 
social services, social housing, the kind of things that municipalities are doing more and more of public health. And so as we ask more of, of municipalities, we also need to consider whether they have the revenue sources to, to meet those the demands that are being put on them. And a, a review of that would be uh, something that would be very, very beneficial. And I think in the long run would lead to better processes um, um, and, and, and better cooperation because municipalities would be sort of able to play their part in a, in a more fulsome way. And then the last thing is really we'd like to see the province pave the way for intergovernmental structures that can deepen the cooperation that we've just, you know, we've been dis discussing, you know, and I think that in some ways will require reforms to prevent some of the more, some of the unilateral interventions we've seen recently. There needs to be a building up of trust between municipalities and the province in some way, because we had over the years the province step in in places that are seen as municipal jurisdiction and that can sort of fray trust. But part of that is sort of setting process in place to prevent that. But it's also about creating tables and councils where the province and municipalities meet that are well-resourced, that are staffed, that meet regularly, that you know, probably are focused on policy areas of particular concern, such as housing or, or climate change or transit, and to really start building the muscles of cooperation between the two orders of government so that going forward, the, the, the default is, is to consider them as partners um, rather than as opponents or, uh, you know, or you know, neutrally as just you know, independent orders of government. We really, really wanna see a model of partnership going forward. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Hatchard, for your time today. Thank you for joining me on Beyond the Headlines. I think that was a very insightful conversation. I certainly learned a lot, and um, th thank you, thank you for thank you for being with me. Thank you, Connor. It's been a pleasure to join you, and and it was really fun to to discuss these issues with you. Once again, that was Thomas Hatchard, who joined us for a discussion on provincial municipal relations. Welcome back to Beyond the Headlines. My name is Connor Fraser. In this episode, we're getting excited for the 2022 provincial election alongside the authors of Ontario 360 Transition Briefings. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. Also, be sure to check out all of Ontario 360's content on Twitter at Ontario 360 or by visiting their website www.on360.ca. We continue our discussion with David McGowan, who is the Executive Director of the Canadian Business Coalition for Climate Policy. David co-authored the two-part briefing entitled The Politics of Emissions Reduction in Ontario. Good afternoon, David. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for being on Beyond the Headlines. How are you? Connor, it's a real pleasure to be here today. And uh, as I look out my window, it's not snowing. So it's better than yesterday, I think. So. Yeah, that that really uh, broadsided me and the rest of my family. We looked out the window and we were like, uh-oh, time to go back into hibernation again. The title of your transition briefing with Ontario 360 is The Politics of Emissions Reduction in Ontario. And to start off our conversation and provide some context for our listeners, can you explain your motivation for writing this article? Probably the best place to start uh, is actually, would actually be to go back a couple of years uh, because one of the professional hats that I wear uh, is as the uh, executive director uh, of, an, of an initiative called Canadian Business for Climate Policy. 
It's a business voice. It's a voice uh, of Canadian business that advocates for uh, effective and consistent climate policy in Canada. So if you think back a couple, three years, 2018, one had the, uh, the election of the Ford government in Ontario. You had the election of the Kenny government a year later in Alberta, a federal conservative party at the time that was only, let's just say, tentatively uh, attached to the idea that uh, effective climate policy uh, was uh, a necessary part uh, of the public policy toolbox. Uh, there was a great deal of climate policy uncertainty at the time. That was the, the rationale to bring uh, a group of business voices together uh, to try and lean against that. When one th thinks about the nature of the climate debate in Canada, the, uh, you know, one could characterize the climate debate uh, in Ottawa as one that uh, broke along sectoral lines, broke along uh, regional lines, and had become very partisan. One of the re reasons for writing this paper then was to see whether or not that same partisan nature uh, was equally evident in Ontario. And I think what surprised me as, you know, I, what I think as a reasonably close observer of Ontario politics uh, was that actually that for the first 15 years of this century, um, the emissions debate in Ontario was political uh, in the best possible sense of the word. Uh, it wasn't partisan. So on, on that note, the first part of your briefing note is really a, a, a history of the politics of emissions reduction in Ontario. And I was wondering if you could give us a primer on Ontario's progress towards reducing emissions over the past 20 years, which you would characterize as healthy and political, not partisan. In every election cycle uh, between 2000 and 2018, every provincial party in Ontario supported the idea that it was critically important to get coal out of uh, electricity uh, generation. That one policy decision, the, po the decision that you know, Ontario ought to replace coal with other fossil fuels, uh, hydro, uh, uh, nuclear power, uh, was the single largest emissions reduction uh, decision uh, in, in Canada over the first two decades of this year. Uh, and certainly uh, the largest single decision that affected uh, uh, emissions reductions in Ontario. And if, if we look at what happened over the, those first 15 years, um, the first government to actually, or you know, the first government to take up the first step uh, in closing coal plants uh, was actually the government of Mike Harris. You know, it's not part of, if you will, the, the political narrative we tell each other uh, around you know, who are the good guys and bad guys on, uh, on climate policy. You know, we tend to we tend to think of these things as as left wing and right wing, uh, uh, as uh, fossil fuel producing versus uh, lower carbon provinces, uh, and in this case, the story of Ontario's exit from coal uh, begins you know in you know at the turn of the century, uh, and it begins with uh, with uh, the pro progressive conservative government of Mike Harris. The the interesting uh, I guess aspect of that of that conversation uh, was that it was rarely talked about as uh, an emissions policy, or you know, Ontario's meeting its Paris targets, or this is going to be the greenest, you know, the best greenest thing ever. It was most often described as a policy that was uh, going to affect positively affect 
um, the the health uh, of Ontario residents. Uh, it was going to reduce smog. It was going to reduce smog gaze. It was going to improve air quality. Uh, there were lots of ways to talk that uh, politicians and, and political parties found to talk about uh, getting coal out of uh, uh, electrical generation. Um, it wasn't always framed as you know, emissions reductions or climate friendly or um, or, or, or other uh, attributes, if you will, of, of that set of uh, public policy ideas. That point that you said uh, really struck me how the, 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 the tone of the debate around, car, around getting rid of the coal plants wasn't necessarily, well, it's good for the environment, but more it's better for the health of Ontarians, it's better to eliminate smog. Um, and I wonder if that is a way if we return to that kind of approach to get buy-in from more people from a broader audience as opposed to you know it's, it's somewhat selfish but <laughs> trying to make people see the benefits to their lives directly of supporting uh, climate climate change and emissions reduction efforts as opposed to framing it as something that's just you know for the greater good and is you know day to day very invisible to people but perhaps to scientists is very evident over a much longer time frame, but that longer time frame doesn't really become evident in the day-to-day -day routine that we all go through. Um, and, and I think that go ahead. You know, I think there's a lot there's a lot of truth there, um, and you know I think one of the one of the most important uh, conversations uh, uh, in and around the climate issue uh, uh, was when uh, Mark Carney, when he was uh, governor of the Bank of England. Uh, he gave a speech to Lloyd, uh, Lloyd's of London in the fall of 2015. Governor Carney spoke about what he described as the tragedy of the horizon. Uh, that is, just as you were suggesting, the climate risks are generally beyond the planning cycle of every government in four or five years uh, and most corporations. Uh, and so it requires you know, a deep commitment uh, on the part of uh, all of, you know, all of these uh, economic actors. I want to fast forward towards uh, the, the recommendations you propose in your transition briefing, or maybe they're better classified as themes, for example, that you, you think should interact in an ideal path forward to reduce Ontario's emissions. So the four themes that you proposed are climate policy certainty, uh, a made for Ontario energy transition strategy, pricing emissions and investing in innovation. I was hoping to touch on all four of these, um, time permitting, but let's just start with the first one, climate policy certainty. Um, can, you, can you just give us an overview of quickly what climate policy certainty means and is Ontario currently moving in this direction? That's, I, I get, I, it's an excellent question. Um, now I think Ontario is uh, slowly getting its political mind around the need, uh, the need for, uh, for increased certainty on climate policy. So let's do a, a, a kind of very quick, you know, where, where were we, where are we? Uh, in 2018, uh, the Ford government came in and, you know, it canceled um, renewable energy contracts, it canceled cap and trade, it apparently, you know, hauled, you know, EV charging stations out of gold parking lots. 
you know, what happened in, 20, in 2018 was, uh, in fact, you know, a very visible exhibition of, you know, what climate policy uncertainty is. Um, and let's, you know, and, and again, thinking about this from, from if you will, the, uh, uh, the perspective of the business community, if you or and I were to uh, make an investment, we, we do what businesses do every day. We, we plan, for, you know, we, we think about where our markets are going. We're planning for the future. We make an investment. If you think about the tax treatment of that investment, you and I have not 100% certainty, but we have reasonable certainty that we know how that investment is going to be treated by the tax system, federally or provincially. When the Ford government canceled cap and trade, that same level of climate policy certainty uh, went from reasonable to zero. So the idea of climate policy certainty uh, is not to say that today's, you know, what, um, what is, you know, if you on the page as climate policy did today can never be changed. But, but what, it, what it does suggest is that you know, businesses uh, need reasonable certainty that that same direction is going to be there a year, two, or five down the road. It, it doesn't have to be identical. Uh, there's lots of room for governments as you know, elections change who's, who's driving the bus to put priorities on, on different facets uh, of climate policy. But the general direction is, you know, you know, it is kind of there in the same way that you know, financial institution policy is, you know, doesn't change radically, that uh, income tax policy doesn't change radically. Business needs that same degree of certainty uh, with respect to climate policy. Uh, and part of that is, uh, you know, is there a price on carbon? It's probably time for a made for Ontario carbon price. So I think that you know, either, whoever forms the next government be they liberal, NDP, or progressive conservative, uh, should uh, implement uh, Ontario's own carbon uh, carbon tax. Uh, it would have to be at an rate at you know, a rate that was equivalent to uh, what on, uh, what Ottawa sets. Uh, but the flip side is, you know, the provincial government would get to decide what it wants to do with uh, with the revenues that it raises. Uh, and I think there are you know two or three things uh, that Ontario could could actually do differently uh, and perhaps do more effectively uh, than you know, the current uh, Ottawa regime. Uh, the first thing is, I think they got to keep lower income Ontario residents whole. So in the same way that uh, lower income residents get HST rebates, there ought to be you know, a, a carbon price rebate. But probably the most important element of, uh, of or the, the most important thing that the Ontario government could do with, uh, with that carbon tax revenue uh, is to support the energy transition that the economy, that the Ontario economy is going to have to go through uh, as we move from process that Ontario manufacturers and others used today to a significantly lower carbon footprint. And that transition from today to tomorrow is Quite bluntly, hugely expensive, uh, and that you know the five hundred million dollars that the provincial government gave to the FASCO, the money that's investing in uh, in batteries in Windsor, the dollars that that are going to uh, Ontario's uh, auto manufacturers. Mm-hmm. So to paraphrase um, some of the stuff that you've said, firstly, the climate policy certainty is is really important for businesses, and this sort of Tearing out all the EV chargers that we saw in 2018, followed by 
the 180 degree turn they they have taken now really doesn't send a clear message to investors, doesn't send a clear message to businesses, and businesses hate that kind of uncertainty. Um, secondly, on the notion of the carbon tax, maybe uh, an Ontario carbon tax equivalent to the federal one might be better because we can tailor it to Ontario's needs and then the government can collect those revenues and spend them in a way that is better for Ontarians than the way that the federal government is going to spend that money. Um, and, and then finally, you know, really emphasizing the, the huge investments that are needed to transition our heavy industries away from, uh, from a carbon intensive process towards a renewable process. And yes, that the $500 million towards the electric furnace, I was reading the IASO report and apparently that's going to be a huge drain on, on electricity as well. So they are, uh, you know, it featured several times in their 2021 uh, uh, annual planning outlook report, which I thought was kind of funny, <laughs> funny, but serious. But you, Connor, you, you highlighted a really important part of this whole transition, which is the, uh, the investment that's going to be needed in electrification. Uh, and that starts with, you know, you know how, do, how does Ontario generate its, its, you know, its energy today? We spent a lot of time talking about, you know, how did, how did we get out of the coal business? You know, nuclear today uh, generates 60% of Ontario's uh, energy, uh, and uh, Ontario power generation uh, is losing three of its productive assets in the next couple of years. At least in the short term, we're likely to see uh, an uptick in, uh, in emissions in Ontario because of you know, what will replace uh, that nuclear generation, and it's likely to be you know, some combination of renewables and natural gas. Uh, in order to help offset uh, those emissions, uh, there are, you know, again, three things that we should really be thinking about in terms of you know, how, you know, where, does, you know, where does Ontario place its, uh, its bets uh, in, uh, in electric generation? Uh, and one is understanding you know, the role of nuclear is fundamental to Ontario's clean energy grid. Uh, the second part of that is, uh, is uh, understanding that there are, there are absolutely opportunities uh, to uh, inject uh, uh, lower carbon fuels, uh, things like hydrogen, renewable natural gas into the uh, energy mix. Mm -hmm. And on that, on that notion, uh, one of the themes that you identified was a made for Ontario energy transition strategy. Maybe we've already talked about some of it threaded through our conversation, but I wondered if we could drill down specifically on what is the energy transition strategy you propose and what about it is made for Ontario? Because I'm assuming there's some similarities between an energy transition strategy that you might see for Ontario or Quebec or New York, but how does uh, the energy transition strategy you propose meet Ontario's unique circumstances? Again, it's probably helpful, helpful to think about it in, in uh, a couple of steps. Uh, the first is to, you know, I, again, acknowledge that the investments that the current government have been making, whether it's DeFasco or EVs or charging stations, those are all attributes of uh, a made for Ontario energy transition strategy uh, ought to include. Um, I think what's, what's missing, if you will, you know, what's the call to action? 
know, and if in the first 15 years of the century, the call to action was, let's get rid of smog or let's improve the health of Ontario residents, you know, is there another call to action uh, other than, you know, emissions are bad, climate is good, uh, but is there a call to action around which all four Ontario parties can rally? Um, and I, you know, suggest that that call to action is uh, understanding that there's a, a, a straight line between uh, Ontario's need for uh, to uh, invest in the province and to create you know, economic growth, uh, so an economic development uh, call to action, and energy transition, because these you know, important but ad hoc investments that the current government are making could be uh, thought more you know, strategically, holistically, as a, you know, a series of investments, uh, sector by sector, that can help, again, the uh, Ontario economy transition from, you know, its higher carbon footprint today to the lower carbon footprint we need tomorrow. Uh, and so the, that made for Ontario energy transition strategy is, a, uh, is an economic development strategy. Uh, again, it's one that will take significant focus and investment on the part of the Ontario government. Uh, it includes, you know, how we think about uh, and invest in uh, our power generation capacity, uh, how we think about our transportation network, how we think about you know, the, the uh, buildings uh, that, uh, that need to be retrofitted, uh, and the fact that homeowners uh, you know, often sim simply don't have the cash to make the investments to, uh, to transition their, you know, that, that residential sector from higher carbon to lower carbon. So again, they, you know, that made for Ontario energy transition uh, is, is really one that speaks to a nonpartisan, uh, all party uh, issue that, that you know, the Ontario government and others can support uh, and recognizing that uh, this transition is going to be one of the most capital-intensive uh, investments uh, that the Ontario that the Ontario economy uh, uh, will need in uh, in the coming decades. Yeah, I like how at, at the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about coal, it came up that everyone everyone was on board with getting rid of coal, and there was this common understanding that it would be good for Ontarians' health, and then now. What you're proposing is that we sort of find a similar rallying point where everyone can agree that, hey, this 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 transition, it's not just about climate change, it's also about the future of jobs in our province, the future of whether uh, whether children growing up are going to be able to live here and be able to have a, a, a reasonable quality of life or whether everyone's going to have to move away because, because we fell behind. Uh, finally, uh, as one final question, are you optimistic about Ontario's likelihood for achieving a continued sustainable uh, emission emission reduction profile? Uh, do you do you think we've found that um, sort of rallying stick, or do you think that it's still missing in the discourse, and we have some parties going off in one direction and others in the other direction, and we don't really we're not really seeing the bigger picture or are we uh, moving towards a common goal? So I, I, I think the real risk that we face uh, as you know, Ontario citizens, as Ontario taxpayers, uh, is that you know, we, we haven't found, you know, we, we haven't yet identified 
uh, that one issue that we could, you know, we can again embrace and uh, and build on. Um, I often wonder, you know, when thinking back to, you know, again the the early years of this uh, of the century, you know, if CO two was particulate, you know, if you could see it in the, you know, in the air the same way that you you and I could see smog, you know, this conversation, you know, this conversation might be entirely different. Uh, but I don't think we've yet found that uh, that uh, issue that we can, you know. Embrace and uh, and create an all-party consensus or nonpartisan way forward. Uh, but I am optimistic because I, I do think that you know the in many ways the business community is there, uh, and the business community is there because to a significant extent you know its customers are there. You know, Defasco needs that five hundred million dollars. You know, not because it wants to you know have a kind of green shine on its corporate credentials. Because, but because the customers that are buying its steel want lower carbon steel. Uh, the same thing goes for you know, the Ontario auto manufacturers, uh, for our steel, uh, for our cement plants. Uh, you know, this is a, you know, this is fundamentally now a, a customer-driven transition uh, that will again require the active participation of uh, of governments and support. Uh, and so I am optimistic. Uh, I don't think it is uh, by any stretch a uh, an easy or straight line. You know, just as we, as we talked about a moment ago, you know, there are going to be ups and downs uh, as we go from higher carbon to you know, a lower carbon footprint. Nuclear generation is is goes offline. Um, there there will be you know any number of medium term challenges that we face, but I am optimistic that you know we'll get there. One of the interesting political conversations that happened about a year ago uh, was a conversation that uh, the former Federal Minister of Natural Resources, Seamus O'Regan, uh, had on a, a podcast hosted by David Hurley called the Hurley Burley. And one of the things that the then minister said was, you know, we're pretty, you know, there's reasonable certainty around how Canada is going to go from you know, our, you know, emissions today to our 2030 objectives. You know, we kind of, we know the technology, we know what really what we have to do, you know, where emissions have to be slowed, you know, across, you know, transportation, building, heavy industry, oil and gas. How do we get to 2050? We don't really have a clue. You know, I think the, I'll say the last and important link in this conversation is really uh, the need to understand that, uh, Ontario, you know, uh, Canadian governments, including Ontario, uh, Canadian businesses, including, you know, the Canadian or the Ontario manufacturing and service sector, we're all going to have to, if you will, think a little like a merchant bank. Um, there are, you know, a dozen technologies out there. There are a dozen uh, investment opportunities out there, uh, each of which holds some promise uh, to support that downward trend in emissions reductions. Carbon capture, carbon capture usage and storage, uh, small modular reactors, you know the you know, development of blue hydrogen, uh, renewable natural gas. Each of these things are likely necessary to keep that downward you know, pressure on uh, on a downward sloping curve. That our challenge as you know as politicians, as business leaders, as citizens is we quite simply don't know which which of those technologies, which of those investments uh, are actually going to deliver uh, on their promise. And so, you know, you kind of have to put 10 bucks on every opportunity. 
and we can't afford to close a door or window. We can't afford to say, you know, I'm not so sure about that. So maybe we shouldn't put, you know, dollars into carbon capture or small modular reactors or something else. Um, I think it's as you know, if you think about this as an investment strategy, we're going to have to encourage all of these things along, uh, understanding that some of them are actually going to fail miserably, uh, but others will be successful. And as as you know, technology and the market and other factors sort through the winners and losers, then capital will flow to those those uh, those opportunities, those sectors uh, that are actually going to deliver uh, on the significant reductions we have to make by 2050. That's a very insightful way to end our conversation. And I think it's good to acknowledge what we don't know. Uh, it, the world is such a complicated place. Who, who can even predict what's going to happen in the next two months in the world? Uh, it's so, so two months uh, ago, we, two months ago, we weren't talking about Ukraine. Right? So. Exactly. Exactly. And, and then, 50 years, who knows what technologies are going to be the best. I think it would be very premature for anyone to make that claim. And that's a very, very good insight you bring that we, we need to keep all doors open. Mr. Regown, thank you for being with us on Beyond the Headlines. I really appreciate, appreciate the conversation. Connor, it was a real pleasure. Good luck with the rest of your day. Once again, that was David McGowan who joined us for a discussion about the politics of emissions reduction in Ontario. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss Ontario's upcoming provincial election. Today's show was produced by myself, Connor Fraser. Additionally, the discussions draw upon a series of briefing notes written in conjunction with the Ontario 360 initiative. You can follow Ontario 360's work on Twitter at Ontario360 or by visiting their website www.on360.ca. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www. .beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with the policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. <laughs>